0: On March 26, 2006, Chris McLeod was relaxing at his home in Hamilton, Ontario. It was a Sunday night, and he was enjoying a glass of wine while listening to Mozart. And at around 8 o'clock, the phone rang. Hello, Crispy. On the other end of the line was his friend Nuri, and he sounded distressed. The two had met by chance a few years earlier on a bus in Hamilton. Nuri was originally from Turkey, and he was trying to ask the driver for directions in broken English. Chris's wife spoke Turkish, and she offered to help. Well, Nuri was so grateful that he later delivered some flowers as a thank you and would often invite Chris and his wife to community events and picnics. But on this night, Nuri was not himself. He explained to Chris that a friend of his was in trouble. That friend, Hussein Chalil was on holiday along with his pregnant wife and their three young boys. The Canadians were visiting family in Uzbekistan in Central Asia, when out of the blue, Uzbek police arrived at the house and Hussein was later arrested.
1: They said, Hussein's being detained in Uzbekistan. I said, what, that's, they said, what do we do? Uh, Can you help? I said, well, no problem. Come over to the house.
0: Chris had met Hussein and his wife once before at one of Nuri’s community picnics. Chris is a lawyer, a commercial litigator, who deals with trade and shareholder disputes. Back in 2006, he was still early in his career, and he’d certainly never handled any cases involving human rights or Canadians detained abroad. But he assumed that securing Hussein’s release would be pretty straightforward.
1: Just that we'd phone uh, Global Affairs? On their 1-800-24-hour number, an urgent message would be relayed to the relevant embassy. They would send somebody out to clear the air (laughs) and have them released.
0: Chris had once lost his passport while on vacation in Sweden, and he'd saved the phone number for the Global Affairs Canada support line for Canadian travelers.
2: Welcome to Global Affairs Canada. Bienvenue à Affaires Mondiales Canada.
0: For service in English, please press one.
1: And that's when all the problems started. And I started to realize that this wasn't going to be quite as straightforward as I thought it may have been.
0: And at that point, they had no idea that another country was in the background, quietly pulling the strings. The
1: first couple of days, I started getting calls from people saying, Chris, this isn't about Uzbekistan, it's China that wants to
3: You know, I cry every day, like three, four times when I I sing about this case, when I sing about my husband.
0: I'm Jeff Semple, senior correspondent for Global News, and this is China Rising. Episode 2, Where's Hussein? The Chinese government has a reputation for using imprisonment as a political weapon. And when China arrests a foreign citizen, especially on what appear to be trumped up or unjust charges, you'd expect that citizen's home country to be outraged and for that anger to be expressed by the highest levels of government. Just like we saw in 2018.
1: We
3: begin this hour with breaking news out of China about two Canadian men detained without official charges.
0: Canadians Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor are now known as the Two Michaels. Kovrig, a former Canadian diplomat, worked for an international think tank. Spavor, a consultant, ran an organization that promotes investment and tourism in North Korea. The two men have never met, but their names and fates are now forever intertwined. The two Michaels have been imprisoned in China since December 2018, charged with espionage. It has been obvious from the beginning that this was a political decision made uh, by the Chinese government. Beijing's decision to arrest the two Michaels has garnered international attention and condemnation, including from the lips of the President of the United States, Joe Biden. Human beings
2: are not bartering chips. You know, we're going to work together until we get their safe return. Canada and the United States will stand together against abuse of universal rights and democratic freedoms.
0: But in the two and a half year fight to free the two Michaels, another name has been notably absent in a case that's dragged on for 15 years.
3: Where's the status case? Why why they don't want to bring it up? You know, why they they don't want to raise it?
0: Camilla Telindabeva agreed to speak with me near her home in Burlington, Ontario, just west of Toronto. We've never met before, but I recognize her face from other interviews and press conferences she's given over the past 15 years. On this day, she was wearing a white wool sweater and a matching headscarf. She forced a smile, but her eyes looked tired, like she'd been crying. It had been a while since she'd spoken to a reporter, and even now, all these years later, it's hard for her to talk about.
3: You know, you can't believe how many times I cry at home.
0: To lighten the mood, I asked her to show me some photographs of her four boys. They range in age from 22 to 14. Camilla flipped through some pictures of them as little boys sitting on Santa's knee, playing at the beach on Lake Ontario and posing awkwardly at graduation ceremonies.
3: I'm very proud when I see them. Oh my God, I'm very proud, <laughs> yeah.
0: She beamed with pride, but then her eyes welled up.
3: Ooh, ooh. I went through so many, so many difficult times. Now when I see them, how they are preparing themselves the university, it's, it's amazing, you know. It's, when I see them, I'm very proud, but something is missing. You know, the main person is missing in the family. That's, that hurts a lot.
0: The person missing from those memories is Camilla's husband, Hussein Chalil was born in China in 1969 in the northwestern region of Xinjiang, which has long been home to China's Uyghur Muslim minority. Relations between China's 12 million Uyghurs and the government in Beijing have been tense for a long time. Occasionally, the conflict has erupted into violence, and in the early 90s, there was a renewed push for independence from some Uyghur activists. China responded by cracking down on Muslim leaders in Xinjiang, to maintain control of the rest restive region. Hussein was an outspoken member of the country's Uyghur Muslim minority, and his first encounter with the Chinese justice system came back in 1994. Back then, Hussein was a young imam and used a megaphone to amplify the call to prayer at his mosque. Standard practice in most Muslim countries, of course. But in China, it earned him 48 days in prison. Soon after that, Hussein fled the country. He was eventually granted refugee status by the United Nations. And in 2001, he and his wife Camilla started a new life in Canada. They became Canadian citizens. But Hussein never stopped speaking out for the Uyghur people.
3: He was speaking everywhere. He was not scared of, you know, when he was talking about uh, protecting his people's rights. And then he was attending the protests in front of the Chinese consul.
0: In 2006, the family traveled on their Canadian passports to Uzbekistan to visit Camilla's parents. Her mother was sick and wanted to see her grandchildren. They'd been there for a couple of weeks, when one day there came a knock at the door. It was the Uzbek police.
3: They came to my place, my parents' house, and then they were questioning about my husband. And... We didn't have any idea, you know, what's going on, what they are talking about. And then they took our passport. The Uzbek authorities, they took our passport. And then they said they're going to give back when we are going to their office.
0: The family was told they could collect their passports from a government office. When the time came, Camilla said a quick goodbye to her husband as he left the house. She had no idea she wouldn't see him again.
3: It was devastating. It was, you know, when I remember this past, it hurts me a lot that day.
0: Camilla's father, who drove with Hussein, returned home with the news of his arrest. In a panic, Camilla called her friends back home in Canada. One of them knew a lawyer, Chris McLeod.
1: And that was our moment to say to Uzbekistan, hang on. He's a Canadian citizen, entered your country with a Canadian passport. He's going one place and one place alone and that is back to Canada, and send in Canadian diplomatic envoy to secure and ensure that happens. That moment was missed.
0: In the weeks following Hussein's arrest, the Canadian embassy in Moscow eventually sent a staff member to Uzbekistan to push for his release. But the Uzbek authorities didn't listen. That's because a few years earlier, in 2001, the country had joined the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, along with Russia, China, and a few other post-Soviet states. Their stated goal was to work together to fight terrorism, separatism, and extremism in member countries. While the Chinese government claimed Hussein was a Uyghur separatist and a terrorist, he was extradited to China and sentenced to life in prison.
3: My husband, he served 15 years for nothing. He was innocent. He didn't hurt anyone, any Chinese or any human being. Just he he had, you know, strong speech, strong speech.
0: Human rights groups say the Chinese government has a long history of labeling Uyghur activists as separatists and terrorists. Alex Neve was the secretary general of Amnesty International Canada for 20 years And he's been fighting for Hussein's release since his arrest in 2006.
2: I think Hussein Shalil's case is is absolutely one of the most egregious, if not right now the most egregious uh, instance of of long-term imprisonment of of a Canadian citizen on completely unjust grounds.
0: In all his years, Neve says he's never seen a case like Hussein's. Imprisoned for so long without a single visit from a Canadian consular official.
2: One has to think that surely after 15 years, uh, there could have been a way to at least get one visit. Uh, and so I, I do have concern that, there, that while, yes, Canada's trying, they haven't been trying hard uh, and certainly need
0: to be trying harder. Hussein's family does credit former Prime Minister Stephen Harper for bringing attention to his case soon after his arrest. In November 2006, Harper addressed Hussein's case directly with the Chinese president at an economic summit in
4: Vietnam. A very frank discussion with President Hu of China. A distinct impression that, uh, if I can say that the Chinese are not used to that from a Canadian government. But
0: the Chinese government refused to budge And after a while, Neve says Hussein seemed to fade from the Canadian government's memory.
2: The Harper government was getting criticized by business leaders as being too hard on China when it came to human rights issues. Um, And it's, it's, I'm sure, really been well over 10 years since there was any significant, concerted, consistent, high-level attention to Hussein Shalil's case.
0: As we mentioned in the last episode in 2016 the canadian government worked to secure the release of julia and kevin garrett from a chinese prison and now the trudeau government is focused on freeing the two michaels but neve says dual nationals detained abroad like hussein typically don't receive the same attention or response from the canadian government
2: We just don't see their cases rise to the top of the list. And it's impossible to deny that to a certain degree, there's an aspect of racism uh, that that underlies that. And I think that's very troubling. We've certainly heard in the past frequently from from Prime Minister Trudeau, uh, famously in the 2015 election, a Canadian is a Canadian is a Canadian. Uh, But I don't think that always translates into the nature and seriousness of the action we see from the Canadian government in these kinds of cases.
0: Last year, Canada's ambassador to China, Dominic Barton, was asked about Hussein Chalil's case during a meeting of the government's special committee on Canada-China relations.
4: Your Excellency, uh, could you share a little bit about your engagement on the Chalil case? On the what? The Chalil case. Chalil? That's the name of a person, of a Canadian detained in China? Oh, sorry, yes, yeah.
0: Ambassador Barton seemed unaware that Hussein Chalil was even Canadian. I've looked into that uh, case, uh, uh, and uh, Hussein, I call him Hussein, has, has
2: basically, because he's a, he's not a Canadian citizenship, he, we are not allowed to provide, con- we aren't able to get access to him on a consular services side, we've, we've tried, a- because he's someone I would like to see, I know it's been a long
0: standing file, uh, but. Uh, yeah. Mr. Chiliel actually is a Canadian citizen? But Hussein's Canadian citizenship is irrelevant to the Chinese government. Beijing doesn't recognize dual nationality, and they consider his case to be an internal Chinese matter. As a result, Hussein's wife Camilla has had no contact with him in 15 years. No letters, nothing. For a time, she was able to receive updates on his condition from Hussein's relatives living in China, who were occasionally permitted to visit him in prison. But since 2015, despite repeated calls, none of Hussein's Uyghur family members in China has answered their phones. Their whereabouts are unknown, feared caught in a government crackdown.
2: The veil has been lifted on how Chinese authorities are treating Uyghur Muslims that have been rounded up and put in mass detention camps.
0: In recent years, Beijing has been accused by a long list of human rights groups, journalists, academics, and governments of accelerating its crackdown on its Uyghur minority, corralling more than a million Chinese Muslims into prisons and labor camps, separating children from their families, even forcibly sterilizing Uyghur women.
3: It's like a nightmare. It's like a horror movie.
0: That's Julie. I met her at her condo in Toronto. I won't be sharing her last name to protect her family who still live in China, but she's one of around 2,000 Uyghur Muslims now living in Canada And like many of the others, she suddenly lost contact with her family members in China. She says she last spoke to her sister in Xinjiang by phone in 2018.
3: And she said, oh, you start worrying about us. That was the last conversation. Sorry. That was the last conversation. And since that, and she wouldn't pick up anything. I can't contact with her.
0: She worries her sister has been rounded up and forced to live and work in one of the Chinese government's alleged labor camps. Chinese officials describe the facilities as vocational schools and part of a highly successful de-radicalization program for religious extremists. For a while, Beijing denied the camps even existed until faced with mounting witness testimony and evidence. Over the past few years, satellite images have revealed the construction of these sprawling complexes, hundreds of large buildings erected inside security walls. From above, they look like gated communities built in the middle of a vast, empty, rocky field. From ground level, it certainly looks like a prison, surrounded by watchtowers and high security walls, some stretching for kilometers, lined with green barbed wire fencing. Journalists who've driven through the remote area say they've been followed and prevented from getting too close to the buildings or conducting any unsupervised interviews with people in the area. Occasionally, though, authorities have invited a small number of Western journalists inside for a highly choreographed tour of the facilities. Images show smiling students, from teenagers to middle-aged adults, filing into the cafeteria, which is decorated with balloons and bunting. They sleep in air-conditioned dormitories, small rooms containing bunk beds. In their classrooms, they read from Chinese-language textbooks and sing children's songs. But leaked Chinese government documents from 2017 paint a much darker picture. They describe how inmates can earn credits for their ideological transformation and how the camp's mass surveillance system is designed to prevent escapes. The classified documents describe a deliberate strategy to lock up ethnic minorities and to erase their language and culture. Tens of thousands of others are allegedly transported to other locations across China to work in factories.
4: I think that the Uyghur population is, for me, as I say, one of the worst uh, mass atrocities of our time.
0: That's Canadian Irwin Kotler. He's recognized around the world as a respected champion for human rights. He's 81 years old, a professor emeritus of law at McGill University in Montreal, And he also runs the Raoul Wallenberg Centre for Human Rights. Before that, he was a long-time parliamentarian, Canadian justice minister, and attorney general. In the early 80s, Kotler was even appointed the Canadian counsel to Nelson Mandela. That came at the request of Mandela's South African legal team, and he helped to promote anti-apartheid activities in Canada. His tireless passion for human rights is infectious. Kotler was one of 50 global experts in international law and Chinese affairs who published a report in March that made international news. It contained firsthand accounts and testimony from around 100 Uyghur survivors, people who made it out of
4: China's alleged labor camps. Survivors have testified to forced enslavement, torture, rape, uh, disappearance, and murder.
0: The report argues that the Chinese government's alleged actions in Xinjiang have violated every single provision in the United Nations Convention on Genocide.
4: And one cannot ignore that the Uyghurs at this point are the most targeted minority since the Jews were were targeted in the Holocaust in terms of what I would call uh, mass atrocities that taken together are acts constitutive Of of genocide.
0: Kotler says he doesn't make that comparison lightly. Some of his own family members were
4: killed in the Holocaust. What makes the Holocaust and the genocides that followed so unspeakable are not only the horrors of the genocide itself, what makes them so unspeakable is that they were preventable. Nobody could say we did not know. Uh, With regard to the genocide of the Tutsis in Rwanda, nobody could say we did not know. With Darfur, same thing with regard to the Rohingyas, the same thing. And as we meet with regard now to the Muslim Uyghurs, nobody can say any longer that we do not know. Alex Neve of Amnesty International
0: agrees and says the persecution of the Uyghurs is insidious.
2: People casually or, or sometimes for political reasons uh, tend to think of genocide um, in terms of the absolute horrors of the Holocaust or the killing fields in Cambodia or the horrors of what happened in Rwanda uh, in 1994. You know, uh, hundreds of thousands, millions of bodies, um, uh, killings uh, as being what genocide is all about. And it clearly is. Uh, you know, That's, in, I suppose, in many respects, the most harrowing examples of genocide. But genocide, uh, as it's defined in the UN Treaty that goes back, uh, you know, over seventy years now um, is about much more than that it's It's about the intent to destroy a people, yes, through killing, but through a whole host of other uh, ways as well bodily and mental harm, uh, absolutely horrific living conditions, preventing births, uh, forcibly transferring children. It's a whole host of of different actions.
3: A Chinese
0: foreign ministry spokesperson says the notion that a so called genocide exists in Xinjiang is the lie of the century, made up by extremely anti China forces. Chinese officials say the so called labor camps in Xinjiang are needed to prevent terrorism and root out Islamist extremism. can I get you to repeat the camera?
1: Monsieur Deltel. Monsieur Deltel. Monsieur Berthoud. Monsieur Berthoud. Mr. Deltel, Mr. Lawrence. Mr. Lawrence.
0: In February, Canada's House of Commons held a vote and agreed with what Kotler and Hussein Chalil had been saying for years. An overwhelming majority of MPs voted to condemn China's alleged mistreatment of Uyghurs as a genocide. But Prime Minister Trudeau and his cabinet abstained from that vote. Trudeau said the word genocide is extremely loaded. And he is not prepared to use it at this point.
1: It was disappointing to see and uh, underscored a lack of leadership. I'm disappointed.
0: Hussein's lawyer, Chris McLeod, worries about the Trudeau government's apparent unwillingness to take a stand against Beijing, which he believes is needed to secure Hussein's release.
1: You need to be loud, you need to be vocal, and you need to call out wrongs when they occur. Period, full stop. There is no quiet diplomacy to bullies, whether they're in the schoolyard or they're on their international stage. And when they've taken one of our own, in this case three of our own, two Michaels and Hussein, we've got three Canadians. Those are three good reasons to do whatever it takes to secure their release and return.
3: Now the world knows, they open their eyes. Now they are seeing what's the reality of what's going on in the, in China for Uyghur people. That's why my husband, Hussein, he sacrificed his young life in China. That's why.
0: Camilla was pregnant at the time of Hussein's arrest in 2006. Zubair, their youngest son, is now 14.
3: When they were little, they were asking every day, every single day, you know, after school, in the morning, they were asking every single day. (sighs) They were asking why he's in China, why why did they give him a life present, you know, the why, what he has done. Hope he's alive, hope, I wish I pray for that, hope he's alive. And then I really, really need Canadian people to help this case, you know, to raise this case's voice. I don't want to be forgotten this case.
0: Camilla still holds on to hope that one day Zubair will finally get to meet his father for the first time and that her family will be together again. It's been 15 years since Hussein was arrested while on vacation. His family and Chris, his lawyer, believe the coming months might finally offer a rare opportunity. The ongoing imprisonment of the two Michaels has shone a spotlight on China's detention of Canadians. And we're also seeing a growing number of Western countries, including the United States and the United Kingdom, that are now openly accusing China of genocide over its treatment of Uyghurs and condemning its so-called hostage diplomacy. And all of that is happening just as Beijing prepares to host the 2022 Winter Olympic Games amid growing calls for a boycott. We have
1: the Olympics coming up in China. China's hosting the Olympics. It's a moment in time where China could do the right thing and release and return him on compassionate grounds. You've now got two other Canadians detained that are very high profile. So it puts a spot, anytime you can have a spotlight placed on a tragic situation, and if we can bring everyone into the fold who's caught up in in, uh, wrongful detentions in China, the goal is release and return of all three. No one left behind. No one.
0: But the question now is how? How should Canada and its allies respond to an increasingly bold and brazen Beijing?
3: Xi Jinping coming to power um, in 2012, um, we started to see new policies being rolled out, a much tighter rein from the central government on the whole rest of the country.
0: We'll explore the growing calls for a tougher, united Western response and investigate what's motivating Beijing's shift in strategy towards what's become known as Wolf Warrior Diplomacy by taking a look at the man in charge. He is a major figure, but he's also one of the world's most mysterious individuals. He has an audaciously ambitious plan,
2: essentially to subordinate the West and all the countries
0: of the the planet to uh, China's leadership. That's next time on China Rising. China Rising is written and produced by me, Jeff Semple, with producers Dila Velezquez and Cam Razavi. Audio editing and sound design is by Rob Johnston, editing assistance from Stephanie D'Souza. You can help me share this podcast by telling a friend. And don't forget to rate and review China Rising on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. You can find me on Twitter at Jeff Semple GN, and you can email me at jeff.semple at globalnews.ca. Thanks again for listening, and please join me next time on China Rising.